The following audio drama contains mild peril and some swearing. Listener discretion is advised. The Object, written, read and produced by Alex C.F. From the outside, the building was an assortment of jaunty angles in metal and glass, jutting from the paving stones like crystal shards. A small sign on brushed steel read, Arkwright Institute of Science. In the lobby, Kirby made for a familiar face, a middle-aged man with an air of authority. He wore a lanyard, chatting with another man and a woman of similar age. Kirby approached and caught his attention. He gave a wide smile and offered his hand to Kirby as they approached. Kirby? he asked. Yes, hi, Kirby Fitzpatrick. Excellent, he replied and ushered them towards another set of doors. They were shown through to a sparse room with a digital projector screen at the far end and some chairs facing towards it. The man invited them to sit and he stood before them. Feels like an AA meeting, the other man said. The host humoured the joke with a half smile. Okay, I would like to thank you all for agreeing to be involved in this project. So we begin by introducing ourselves to each other, our profession, and then I will explain what we're doing here and why we have approached this in such a unique way. I'll start I guess. My name is Eshram Bakri, this project was brought to my attention a few years ago. I've since become the chief coordinator of the project. I'm a physicist, I work mostly in quantum theory. Eshram offered the floor to the room. A woman with long blonde hair in her mid-forties stood up. Hi, I'm Sheila Doherty. I'm a chemist and I work mostly in the private sector, but I've also worked for NASA for a number of years on the searcher probes. The man in his late 30s, handsome and unshaven, sat nonchalantly. Okay, I'm uh, Matthew Lane, I'm a forensic archaeologist. Kirby sat up. I'm Kirby Fitzpatrick, my pronouns are they, them, and I am a psychotherapist. Eshram smiled and told them to relax. So, okay, I'll jump right in. 20 years ago, a British man was found dead in his car, wrapped around a phone pole just outside Portswave in Wales. The vehicle had previously been involved in hit and run on the same night. The driver was clutching something. From the outside, it appeared to be a plastic children's toy from the 1980s, one of the types where you could unlock its chest or shell and place your keepsakes inside. When the item was removed from his hands, it was found to contain something. It was checked into evidence pending further investigation. Three nights later, the police station burned to the ground. A number of cases relied on evidence held in that room, so every effort was made to rescue whatever had survived the flames. The plastic toy was retrieved, surrounded by burnt and melted items. The toy was completely unscathed. It was removed and taken to another station where it was stored. Word of this evidence surviving was related to the detective in charge of the hit and run case, and the toy was finally examined. Inside the toy was a small, black rectangular box. The detective experienced some odd occurrences after coming in contact with it, and eventually, through various means, the Arkwright Institute acquired it. What was so special about the box? Matthew asked. We are hoping you can tell us that. So far, all attempts to understand it have failed. He made for the projector, switched it on, and then turned out the lights. The first image showed a pink snail with acrylic hair. The second showed a hatch in the snail shell opened. The next slide showed the item at a distance. It was a small box, crudely made, about the size of a soda can, and almost jet black. It appeared to be made from wood, hand-carved, and either charred or painted black. It had a slight sheen as though it were dirty with grease. Eshram narrated the images. 
The origin of the box is unknown. We've had various academics look at it in the past, and much like every other aspect of this item, its provenance is just as elusive. Some have placed it as old as Mesopotamian, some have said Mayan. One archaeologist dismissed it as a cheap trinket from India, something you'd buy on the street. Carbon dating is inconclusive, although further tests can be carried out here in regards to its history. Matthew grimaced. Without seeing it in person, I couldn't tell you. So, is this the project? Eshram smiled and shook his head. Well, yes and no. You see, the object is physically unremarkable, at least to the naked eye, beyond its historical and cultural significance. However, it appears to have a somewhat unique effect on those it comes in contact with. There are numerous reports of it producing hallucinogenic, mind-altering effects. Others have found themselves nauseated in its presence. Sheila stepped forward and put on her glasses. In what way? Has anyone checked if it's radioactive? As far as we know, it's not radioactive. However, sound has been recorded purportedly emanating from the box. It is made of wood, we think acacia. We're hoping that through these experiments we'll be able to determine if it is indeed harmful, Eshram replied. You mentioned sound. Is it a musical box? No, it doesn't appear to have any internal mechanisms. Look, I'm going to be completely clear on this. This object has a long and disturbing history. The box itself is, as I said, unremarkable. We know it has a hollow interior, although we are yet to open it. An x-ray has identified a number of unknown fragmented objects inside. It does not appear to have any seams. Perhaps its most anomalous characteristic is that, on more than one occasion, has been known to have had a remote effect on other objects, and in some cases, people. To my knowledge, a number of individuals, including the driver of the car, have died as a result of coming in contact with it. Now, before you... He was interrupted. If this thing is dangerous, I want out. Matthew threw his arms up. Please, the previous individuals who worked with the object are alive and well, and developed a strict set of criteria to avoid any adverse effects. Consider this the same way you would approach an infectious disease. Kirby spoke up. You say remote effects on objects. What do you mean? Eshram continued as he opened up a video on the laptop attached to the projector. This is Kathleen and Michael Ambrose. They worked with the object for six months. This video was recorded in one session from behind a sheet of a material they developed to counteract the effects of the box. We have used that throughout this facility. It also appears to shield the object from our observation. The video was clear and in focus. The object sat squat in a perspex case. Around the object were a series of trinkets. A wind-up toy, a spoon, an hourglass and a series of dominoes. The sound of people leaving the room could be heard with the click of the door latch. The camera was trained on the objects. Everything was motionless, static, until the spoon promptly moved. The domino shuddered before being thrown aggressively across the room. The wind-up toy fell on its back and the motorised legs whirred. There was a moment of silence and then, against all previously understood laws of gravity, the sand and the hourglass began to flow back up into the upper glass vial. Matthew laughed. If this is fake, right? That's That's got to be fake. You just reversed the footage. Sheila looked at Eshram. No, there's no reason why we would be here if it was fake. This is all real, isn't it? Eshram nodded. It's of no interest to me unless it is something that can be tested, observed and studied. What you saw in that video, I have hours of similar footage. I can show you, in real time, events that defy logic. But it's a box, Matthew was incredulous. Kirby was mystified. It has all the hallmarks of a cursed object. Matthew rolled his eyes. Really? A cursed box? 
This is bullshit. Eshram opened his hands. It is not the first time that such ideas have been uttered in its presence and not the only object that has been labelled as cursed or have carried some sort of entity with it. We are not here to discuss things that go bump in the night. We are here to understand how this little wooden box is affecting its environment. This facility has been designed from the ground up to be made suitable for that examination. There are cameras throughout, all behind the polymer that shields its influence. You will not be exposed to anything. We have remote tools and remote cameras. Why do cameras have to be shielded? Sheila asked. Kirby uttered under their breath. It doesn't like being watched. Eshram began to speak, overhearing them. Yes, it turns them off, breaks them, or refuses to perform for us. Sheila walked to the window. What is special about this screen? It carries a unique crystalline polymer structure. Whatever the object is emitting, the screens act like a dampening field, Eshram replied. You manufacture this yourself? To her specifications, Kathleen developed the polymer herself. How does she develop and test the polymer? How does she withstand the effects of the object until the polymer was effective? We use transparent graphene, other carbon polymers. I would love to see what was done to make this impregnable to the effects of whatever the box is. If this box has not been tampered with, then there must be other boxes. Are there other boxes? Eshram smiled. As far as exposure whilst testing the polymer, I'm afraid I don't know. The schematics will be sent to you. It's really quite fascinating stuff. I don't have information on any other boxes. The Ambroses were the first team to analyse the box under my instruction. The previous years, other individuals were charged with understanding its nature, with, quite frankly, very little success. Until the polymer was developed, equipment refused to work in its presence. Eshram then ushered them through a set of double doors, and into the main hub of the facility. It was divided into a number of separate rooms and an adjoining corridor that ran around the perimeter of the central lab. The main laboratory was sealed in a vacuum. Access was provided through a primary airlock, but also through a secondary emergency airlock. There were a number of observation windows from the main corridor into the lab. Sleeping quarters, kitchen, lounge and a small gym were provided for the team. The lab had three large workbenches, each facing inwards towards the central case, which was compartmentalised with hydraulic doors that could be raised and lowered as, as and when. Above the central chamber was a second housing that would be lowered if the primary chamber was breached. A conveyor belt system was built to move equipment and samples to and from the main specimen case. Scientific apparatus sat beside the conveyor at various stations. Clear corridors extended from the central hub to accommodate these devices and still allow visual access to the object itself. It was accessible only via remote manipulators. They were escorted to the main airlock and shown how to access the lab. They would not need to wear protective clothing whilst working as the object was sealed behind the screens. However, for added precaution, the dividing walls and windows were made of the same impregnable material. We have made the lab a closed environment so that we can monitor any atmospheric changes in the room. Some experiments may require you to manipulate the object within the case in which it lives. The lab has various hardware to make very precise measurements. Sheila frowned. Interesting that you describe the object as living in the case. Eshram laughed. Oh, a turn of phrase. Sheila gave him a wry smile. That is yet to be determined. Eshram continued. I understand that this is a very unique study, and again, any of you wishing to leave, that's entirely your prerogative. But please understand, this is a legitimate investigation into the validity of the claims made about this item. I may add that this is one of a few studies being carried out on similar cases. Sheila frowned. To what end? 
Eshram shrugged. The great question. Are we alone? Is there life after death? What is consciousness? Kirby smirked. So, no big deal. Kirby was impressed by the attention to detail. No corners had been cut in the pursuit of as definite an answer as possible. The on-site sleeping quarters, check-in of all personal objects, including the seizure of mobile phones. The system was hermetically sealed. Internet access was monitored, research papers needed to corroborate theories were curated and supplied as and when. The lab was equipped with cutting-edge technology. It was fascinating how prepared they had been, but Kirby was intrigued by those they'd chosen, a curious quartet. Eshram was making coffee by the time Kirby stumbled into the kitchen. Dreary-eyed, they ruffled their hair and put on their glasses. Coffee, they said excitedly, heading for the mug tree and hoisting their cup before Eshram. Yes, please, they said, and was rewarded with the strong aroma of steam rising as he poured. May I ask, who is Arkwright and why are they funding this project? Sheila appeared fully clothed, a pile of books slung under her arm. Eshram paused. Of course you can ask, but I can't tell you a great deal. Kirby frowned. You don't want to create bias? Eshram nodded. Exactly. All I can say is that they are an independent scientific research institute, with no ties to the military or any political agenda. Their benefactor, Hendon Arkwright, is a physicist who made a lot of money through entrepreneurial pursuit, mostly in scientific patents, and wanted to explore some interesting avenues. He, and the organisation he oversees, is purely interested in what we discover. Sheila looked suspect. This usually leads to and the military applications of said discoveries. Matthew appeared, sweating, a sports drink in his hand. That's right, we're going to forego the guns and bombs and start throwing haunted boxes at people. It's a sure win. Sheila groaned. Even you must be curious as to why someone would spend this much money on analysing an object that might be exactly what it looks like, a small wooden box. Kirby, I'm assuming you have a say on this matter. Humans applying mysticism to inanimate objects. Kirby smiled. Yeah, of course, classic animism. It's culturally ancient. Idol worship, the physical avatar of a god. I guess the idea of attributing agency to the box is probably the result of the story it carries. The box has a history. Those who have encountered it have learned of that story and then expect and possibly will something to happen. They'll interpret whatever they experience around it to the box, kind of like the Ouija board. You expect it to do something and then whatever happens is immediately attributed to the Ouija board. The wooden thingy, the, the planchette, when that moves, that's a ghost. It's not your friend moving it or you. The least likely explanation becomes the most guilty. It's like clutching a crucifix or a rosary or any number of religious paraphernalia. Matthew giggled. This is going to be a fun ride. In answer to your paymaster's question, Eshram, the box is a box and humans are superstitious idiots. The end. Eshram grinned. Our paymaster, Matthew. Coffee? There was a collective yes. They entered the main lab not long after breakfast. There were individual workbenches for each member of the team, two large whiteboards and of course the central plinth upon which the object was situated. There was no glove box to access the object, but there was a series of robotic armatures. The technician, a young Korean man called James, sat at a computer terminal and was busy setting up the system. He was introduced to the team. James built this apparatus for us and has been working out any kinks in the software. It can take samples and manipulate the object if need be. The object sits in a little cradle that keeps it stable and in place. James smiled and nodded to everyone. 
The robotic arms are pretty easy to use, but for now I'm happy to do whatever is needed with the object until you all get the hang of it. I will be at your beck and call with all things related to the equipment here. The computers and the apparatus. If you have a hunch and we don't have the equipment, we can get it shipped in. Wow, Sheila began to identify the equipment at the centre of the room. This is impressive stuff. Eshram, you have experience with this stuff? Eshram nodded. Yes, I was actually involved in the installation of this facility. I knew that I wanted to cover all bases. We have infrasonic detectors, full spectrum spectroscopy, spectrophotometer, chemical and organic sensors, all kinds of stuff. I'm assuming you've scanned the room after installation before we entered, Sheila added. The object was brought in a sealed container, which you can see to the side there, he pointed to the box. This room hasn't had any contact with it. The robotic arms removed it and placed it in the cradle. Kirby stared long and hard at the object. All of this, this equipment, the special glass, the robotic arms, you are creating a shrine for it. It is already being venerated, sitting on its little throne in there. Just by creating the sterile environment, we are giving it importance. We are subconsciously gifting it with imaginary terrible powers, and we are all already afraid of it. I'm afraid of no box, Matthew laughed. Eshram sighed. No, this is important. It's important that we take every precaution to not be swayed by our own predilections. Kirby is here to remind us of that. Those are powerful weapons against reason. It's good to have a ground wire, observe interactions, record the minutiae, the tells and the body language. Sheila took up residence in front of a computer and began making notes. I assume we have no access to anything produced by the previous team, the Ambroses. Eshram nodded. I want fresh eyes on this, but if there is anything pertinent that I feel would be useful, then perhaps I will look into it. I suggest we begin with sample analysis and then move to, on to identifying whether the box is emitting anything, be that sound or radiation. They all agreed. They crowded round a large monitor as James swung the armature into place. It was equipped with a tiny drill attachment. Matthew zoomed in on the corner of the box. The black residue appeared thickest at the corners. Can we take a sample from the corner closest to us? I'm interested in the substance covering the object. The drill bit was a hollow cutting tool and a clean cylindrical bore was removed. This was placed in a dish and moved along a conveyor where the section was accessible through a glove box. Under a microscope, Sheila divided the sample into a number of smaller pieces with a scalpel and then placed one piece in a chemical analyzer. Another piece was sent further down the conveyor so that Matthew could begin studying the properties of the wood itself. Under the microscope, he could make out the black oily substance on the surface. In alcohol, it diluted. The stuff on the surface, it's organic. Let's analyse it. Could be tar or tree sap, maybe? Matthew began placing the liquid in a solution to examine the components. You have access to DNA analysis equipment? Eshram nodded. Yes, we can handle that. This whole system is automated. If you place the sample vials in the rack, send them back on the conveyor and it will enter them for DNA analysis. Wow, that's pretty nifty. This is bespoke machinery. I'm still struggling to understand the significance of this box. What on earth can it offer? Kirby leaned in. Maybe that's the question. Maybe it's not from the Earth. They gave him a wry smile and then continued to look at the screen. The object is bestowed with personality, in this case a demonic presence, having apparently killed, and yet we revere it, prod and poke it, trying to glean its secrets. It's just as likely that it's nothing more than an old box and everything that happens in its presence is actually some latent psychokinetic abilities in us. We are moving the objects. We are the spooky shit. Sheila looked up from the microscope. This is wood fibre. The box is wooden, as presumed, but it's impregnated with a substance. 
It's throughout the sample. I don't want to make any false assumptions, but it looks a lot like blood cells. They collectively turn their gaze to her in shock. I mean, what did you really expect? She returned her attention to the microscope. Matthew nodded. If it's an idol of some sort, it makes sense that it would be worshipped in one way or another. Blood offering, sacrifice, it's not uncommon in things this old. Kirby looked closely at the screen where the box was displayed. By who? We'll be able to carbon date the box and once the DNA comes back we might be able to ascertain when the blood was deposited. Sheila looked to Eshram. Can we take stills using the camera? Eshram nodded. Yep, James can show you how to use the software. Kirby made themselves useful by researching cases where patients had imbued objects with a sense of agency. As they trawled through the case files, they couldn't shift the nagging sensation that the box was a self-fulfilling prophecy. They themselves had begun to view it with a sense of dread. The black object in the sterile white room, the linchpin to the study, everything pivoted on its little nucleus. From where they sat, they could see it in the reflection on surfaces. They could feel its magnetic presence. They looked over their shoulder to catch it there, in its glass case, held on its little throne. That night, Kirby lay in bed debating the merits of the project. There was evidence that the object had some kind of influence, though having not experienced this themselves, it was difficult to fit that within their reality. It was a misnomer to call it cursed, or haunted, it was a box with a story until otherwise proven. They found this discomfort reassuring in a way. It was a challenge to understand the psychology of a group of learned academics in the presence of a purported supernatural item. It would test their ability to categorise behaviours. This realisation seemed to trigger a sense of purpose. They turned over and went to sleep. It's blood alright. I would say some of it is relatively recent, but beneath this there are traces of far older blood. We can test the mRNA molecules. It suggests it's older than 50 years. Matthew is carbon dating the wood, but we are looking at something at least 50 years old or older, so it's not a modern trinket. It's old, and someone has bled on it recently. The car crash? Kirby posited. It was sealed inside the toy, remember? Seems unlikely, Eshram replied. Matthew appeared with a cup of coffee and a printout. The carbon-14 test came back. This thing is over 2,000 years old. This says between, wait, 2,400 and 2,200 BCE. It's acacia wood, as suggested before, so Middle Eastern, Egyptian, wherever acacia grew. There are traces of iron ore, tree wax, tree rendered tar. They all look towards the object. Older than Christ, Sheila said. And just as hokey, Matthew added. James interrupted them. You want more weird news? I think you will all be interested to hear what I recorded using the contact mics. I had it running yesterday to identify any odd frequencies or discrepancies. I must admit I accidentally left it running and I came back to this this morning. It's really quite something. Yesterday when we were taking the sample, I had the equipment on. Obviously the noise of the drill and our presence would have made it hard to register anything particular, but I had this odd spike of very low frequency sound after the sample was taken. It registered at around 1000 Hz. It continued for a while and was coming directly from the box. The sound increased over the rest of the day and came within audible ranges whilst we were asleep, but what I recorded at around 1am was very strange. Listen. James clicked on the recording. He watched the others for their reaction. Immediately, there was the sound of something like a bumblebee, that deep, resonant, organic hum. The sound appeared to stop and start, the swirling, oscillating sound that peaked and faded out, only to then return with vigour. 
What was particularly odd was that it had a familiar aspect. It appeared to have the faintest of suggestion of human vocalisation. It was not speech, or even the sound of a human voice, but the erratic timber and enunciation of unspoken words. Wow, it sounds like sand being shifted around, Sheila suggested. Kirby nodded their head. Yeah, or a seashore, like the tide receding over rocks. Matthew shook his head. It's movement, like something moving inside the box. But we need to open this thing up, see what all the fuss is about. Sheila turned to Eshram. Can we? No, he frowned. Matthew sighed. How can we make progress if we can't open it? Eshram raised his hand. But we could put a camera inside it. The box must retain as much integrity as possible. I'm also concerned that the box exists to contain something. Kirby smiled. Hang on, I just realised. This thing is over 2,000 years old. It's a box that contains something unknown and seemingly powerful. Is this Pandora's box? Sheila grinned. Ha, wow, I, I don't know the tale, but I know the turn of phrase. James interjected. Well, Pandora's box was an urn and not a box. It was actually one of two. One contained good and the other evil. I think we can safely say that this isn't either. Yeah, but it's a myth. Myths are often based in reality, cautionary tales. Perhaps this is something along those lines. Perhaps items like these fabricate the myths of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail. Aberrations that are so sought after, so prized, so despised and worshipped, Kirby said enthusiastically. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. James, can you prepare the drill for the insertion of a surgical camera? Then we can see what's inside this thing once and for all. They once again crowded around the monitor as James applied the drill bit against the box. Within a few seconds, the hole was complete and the drill armature folded away. He manoeuvred the camera on its hydraulic tentacle and inserted it gently into the aperture. An LED light allowed for a clear view of the interior. The inside of the box was a bare burnished metallic veneer and empty but for small pieces of cloth that might be animal hide. They had been pulverised. In the far corner, mere inches from the camera, was a pile of slightly metallic sand. The camera pushed a little closer and as if in reaction, the sand moved. You saw that, right? Matthew said. What is that stuff? Sand? Dust? Can we get a sample? Sheila added. James gave a quiet yes under his breath and removed the camera. He engaged a second armature, complete with a tiny scoop at its hilt, and placed it within the box. This will be trial and error, he said. A few false starts led to a successful retrieval of matter from within the box. He removed the armature, placed its contents in a small petri dish, and closed it, sending this along to analysis. The box then began to vibrate. It shook itself free from its cradle and fell onto the floor of the case. Eshram looked concerned. Let's close off the case from the rest of the equipment. James engaged the sealing mechanism which enclosed the box entirely. They sat in silence. They could hear the percussive throb of whatever was in the box. The volume increased, picked up by the contact mics. Something exploded from the exploratory hole. A mass of black particles ejected, spewing out and up against the case walls. Like a swarm of incense wasps, it hit the clear polymer with audible force, morphing and coalescing, a malleable, angular thing, a murmuration of starlings. It was flooding from one corner to another, as though searching for means of escape. They watched in disbelief as it began to calm, tracing the edges of the box, seeking the borehole, before pulling itself back within its dark interior. What the fuck? Matthew looked to each of them. What was that? Sheila pointed to the sample. We have a piece of it. Let's have a look.
It's simple iron. It's it's a tiny fragment of iron. The other stuff is cowhide. I think it might have been a little bag or piece of leather that was bound containing the iron shavings. Another fascinating aspect is that the lacquer on the inside of the box, layers of shellac, that have peculiar amorphous crystalline structure which bears a striking resemblance to the material used in the housing of the box. Are you sure the Ambroses did not study the interior of this box? As far as I am aware, they only x-rayed the contents. This box was never opened, said Ashram. Forget the box. How is iron able to move around like that? It moved with purpose, Kirby gesticulated wildly. Come on, said Matthew. It's iron. It's got to be electromagnetic fields in the room generated by the computers. James shook his head. No, that's not possible. Strong electromagnetic fields would interfere with the computers. Nothing would work. Kirby rewound the recording. They had a hunch and scrolled through the stills until they saw what they had suspected. The iron particles moved as though they were held in situ, held by something invisible, placed as though held against curving cloth. They hemmed and hawed like sequins on a dress. They were identities, boys, flares in the night. The iron is not the culprit. The iron is showing us the culprit. Sheila got closer and studied the movement of the iron. The iron was put in the box for a reason. Kirby smiled, feeling a little shiver up their spine. So we could see its prisoner. As a precaution, they left the lab, and Eshram, in a hazardous material suit, re-entered to check for breakages in the seals that housed the object. The case was pressurised and found to be airtight. The lab was also flushed and scanned for the presence of any organic or non-organic elements that might have been dangerous. The lab remained clean, and there was no evidence that the case had been damaged. They decided to have an early meal together and discuss the day's events. Sheila pushed food around her plate. I'm curious to hear what people have to say about our new guest. Matthew groaned. This can't be our only hypothesis. The iron filings moved around the box. Iron filings act oddly around magnetic fields. This is hardly evidence of anything supernatural. Eshram placed his elbows on the table and rested his chin against his fingers. As much as I agree with Matthew, there is just as little evidence of strong magnetic fields interacting with the iron fragments. Kirby agreed. What if we remove the box once the filings are separated from it? The box is housing the filings. We have to consider the box as benign and its contents is our subject. Sheila interjected. I would like to know why it couldn't leave the box. A little wooden box seems a somewhat flimsy cage. Okay, let's remove the box or at least separate it and see how the iron filings behave. Agreed? Eshram asked the room. They all nodded. The next day, their first task was to introduce an armature with a claw attachment. It lifted the box and another pushed aside the cradle, replacing it with a large flat bottom glass dish. The box was then turned so that the borehole faced down. The iron filings did not immediately flow from the box and from the safe distance of the monitor screen, they watched them ooze from the aperture as though attached to a viscous liquid, yet no liquid could be seen. Eventually, it fell from the box, releasing the black particles that cascaded around the dish. There was something invisible in the case. They watched it expand, shifting scraps of ruddy black shuddered and then shot towards an unseen obstacle. It was sluggish, as though whatever of magnetism it once held was weak. The box was then removed, shunted down the conveyor to a separate holding space. Can we use any filters to try and see what it is? Like infrared. James cycled through various spectrums. Nothing appeared to allow any greater understanding of the absent occupant. Sheila turned to Eshram. Can we train some lasers on it, perhaps test if it is refracting light waves? If we can construct a 3D light grid, we might be able to map its movements. Eshram looked to James. 
Yep. Yeah, we can do that. We have laser emitters in the room, motion detectors, tomographic sensors, the works. They moved out of the laboratory whilst James set up the grid in the room remotely. It won't give us much, not enough lasers, but it will give us at least some idea. The screen shifted to a mapping image. They focused on the movement within the case. The entity was moving, but very slowly. With so few lasers to break, no reasonable images were being created. James sighed. Yeah, okay, I'm going to have to erect a light rig for the box. I think I've most of the stuff here, but I'll have to order in a few bits. Matthew sighed. Why don't we just dump a bunch of iron powder on it? Surely the original crafters of the box had the same idea. Sheila shrugged in agreement. Works for me. James disappeared into the storeroom in search of iron powder. He returned not long after and added the fine particles to a receptacle that would be conveyed along to the case containing the subject. Luckily we have an airlock system or this thing could get out. They watched as the receptacle was delivered to the first hatch. The perspex door lifted and the iron moved within the first chamber. The door then closed and the second opened. The entity did not react. Once inside the main chamber, James activated the armature, lifted the receptacle and promptly emptied it onto the entity. Immediately it clung to the invisible folds of the presence in the box, drawing toward it in jagged peaks, fronds that spiked and scissored and ran flush with its empty surface. It was a spasming mass, a formless shape, sending out loose tendrils of itself as it writhed against that which showed its form, that which it could not shed. It was livid for it sensed it had been sensed. It began to vibrate with menace, a cobra tail, a frantic shudder that seemed to draw out primal fear in the entire group. It slammed against the wall of the case, undeterred by the futility of such an act. It's conscious, Kirby whispered. It wants out. That's active consciousness. Eshram nodded. Trapped in a box for 2,000 years. I can see why. But what are we looking at? What is it? Why was it in the box, and how is it so large compared to the space it was once in? Sheila shook her head slowly, perplexed. James raised his voice. I've got a theory. I think it might be some kind of exotic energy or matter. Some kind of new state. I've been monitoring the energy levels. It is entirely invisible, yet it's reacting to the iron. The moment we added the iron powder, I had an infinitesimal dip in temperature within the box. I believe that despite our inability to register it with our equipment, we can notice its effects on that which it interacts with. Sheila considered this for a moment. Can you increase the temperature in the case? James nodded. Yes, we can increase the temperature in the room and in turn. I wonder if it's drawing energy from ambient heat. James cranked the thermostat and they waited. It didn't take long for the entity to lift from its sedate state to make laps of the space. They then began to notice faint traces of detail. Difficult to identify, yet enhanced by the iron powder, it began to take form. A flexing mass, warping like divided cells. A fetal child, its undeveloped limbs sprouting like sinewy stalks, and a mouth, screaming with ferrous rage. Its form spasmed and shuddered, waves of particular iron rippling out in vestigial limbs, insect-like they probed the four corners of the box. The face was now a recognisable infant child, eyes screwed shut, the furious mouth pulled taut and a sharp, rasping voice cut through the air, cut through the bespoke polymer prism. Through the windows, it resonated until the clear wall rattled, quickened, a shudder became a precise vibration and sonic timber honed to a fine point. Every surface shattered, 
palindrome of tempered plastic cascading in mirror arcs, sending shards into fragile skin and cloth. Fingers were forced into ears, the agony of frequencies unheard before, the sinus nightmare reverberated throughout their heads, perforating delicate blood vessels and eardrums. Eshram dragged himself upright, using his back to shimmy up the wall, hands feverishly groping the sides of his head to spare the searing fire within his skull. His vision was distorted, and he quickly realised that there was blood pouring from a wound in his head. He moved along the wall slowly, toward the small panel with a fire alarm trigger. He slammed his shoulder into it, and metal shutters fell from the ceiling, separating them from the entity. With the sound somewhat diminished, he opened up a console. A small video link screen showed him the lab, and the entity still within the framework of the case, despite there being no barrier between it and the outside world. He looked to James, who nodded. Yes, do it! Eshram engaged the emergency protocol. The secondary case slid down over the shattered remains of the first. Although an imperfect seal, the chamber was immediately flooded with a silicon-like gel from a series of jets in the ceiling. The entity seemed undeterred, as it was encased in a clear, viscous fluid. Within a few seconds, the sound of its wretched scream was muffled to a low, incapacitated drone. They all stood. Kirby noticing the blood from Sheila and Eshram's ears. Tinnitus ravaged their senses, and they stumbled towards one another. Eshram raised the metal shutters, revealing the decimated laboratory. Every window and glass receptacle had shattered. At the centre of the destruction was the case. Resin had poured from beneath the secondary housing, yet had solidified quickly. It had cured completely clear, and within the resin was an effigy of a screaming child. The uninterrupted copper-brown hue of the iron powder revealed copious detail. The child was in a state of flux between two forms, fragments rendered perfectly, yet split like spliced film reels. Matthew politely manoeuvred amongst the group as they crowded around the case. He looked closely at the little child. It was a boy, and he was naked but for a collar, bands around his feet, and a small lock of hair on the side of his head. The child was cleaved in two, the first a naked newborn, the second state showed partial clothing, a linen robe. They pored over image archives, trying to cross-reference the little they could discern from the monochrome effigy. Matthew wanted to be sure, but he slid a book across the table and pointed at the illustration. 18th Dynasty Egyptian, by the looks of it. That's a wasset collar. Their kids didn't wear clothing until six or seven years old. But this odd split, like two time frames, I think this robe might have been worn in death. That's a wild guess, of course, but perhaps he died young? Sheila looked at him. But how, how did he end up attached to this box? Matthew pondered. I've no idea, but within the context of knowing it was from the New Kingdom of Egypt, we might even be able to work out who he was, where the box was found. So many tombs were raided, their treasures and secrets sold off and lost to antiquity, but we know a surprising amount about their culture, the dynasties. I'm not an expert in ancient Egyptian artefacts, but I can get someone to have a look at the box. Matthew looked to the case. The box was buried deep within the resin. Ah. Eshram nodded. I don't even know where to begin with this. What are we looking at? Kirby sighed. I think we are looking at the thing your boss was looking for. I think we have found empirical evidence of a supernatural event. Perhaps this child is the non-corporeal state of a human after death. Eshram shook his head. But this is... this... James, will it hold? The gel? James let out a nervous laugh. I have no idea. 
It's a fast cast resin that contains the same polymer as the windows. That thing, it generated a sound that caused the material to break down at a molecular level. I don't know how. Sheila picked up a piece of the shattered polymer. I have an idea. We think this entity is made of a form of exotic matter that perhaps floats around all of us. Like dark matter, exists in clumps. We know this. We have observed how light is distorted by dark matter in space. What if, and this is a big if, what if this is what we are looking at? Dark matter, Matthew scoffed. Conscious dark matter in the shape of an Egyptian kid. She gave him a sarcastic hiss. Come on, I'm spitballing. Say this dark matter interacts with the electrochemical imprints of living beings. Perhaps a transference of that information onto this matter. And that matter, it is very unique. It transcribes that data like a computer, converts those signals into something that can be perceived. It may be entirely random, a set of consequences with no motive, a form of matter that has a structure that interacts with that information on a subatomic level. Programmable matter, Eshram posited. Yes, in a way, the matter interacts with consciousness. The child died and appeared before his parents. The priests or holy people were brought to the home and asked to rid them of this curse. The Egyptians used shellac too. You found that on the inside of the box. I wonder if that was entirely deliberate, Matthew said. Did the Egyptians use iron? Sheila asked. Matthew nodded. Yeah, and it had special significance. They called it the metal from heaven. It wasn't used as a building material. It was found in meteorites. It was to all intents and purposes a precious metal. James did a quick internet search. Yeah, pronounced bar n pet. Sorry about that. Meaning stone or metal from heaven. So they maybe used this in a ceremony and noticed a reaction. They learned to impede it through the use of the iron and that shellac might block its movements. They managed to capture it using these techniques, sealing it in the box, burying it in a tomb along with the child's corpse. Years later, grave robbers dig it up and it goes on a journey, and all the while it's a consciousness trapped within, a child no less. It's driven mad, or perhaps it takes on qualities unknown. Its sphere of influence grows, it is able to manipulate objects outside the box to lash out. Kirby looked despairingly at the face of the child. Eshram placed his hand on the case. And now it's trapped again. They began to sweep up the debris in silence, all the while stealing glances at the case. We should attempt to free it. We can continue to experiment once we have working equipment, said Kirby. We'll have to secure the subject, repair the damage to the lab. For now, I think it's best we pack up, give James time to recover information from the hard drives and regroup once we have reported back our findings to the higher ups. They all looked to Eshram, suddenly aware of the magnitude of what they had experienced. Once I have an idea of what the next step will be, I will contact all of you, I promise. It was late afternoon. They began to pack up their belongings, recovering their personal items from the security team. Kirby lifted their duffel bag and went to exit the sleeping quarters. Eshram stood waiting at the door. Quite a day, he said with a sheepish grin. It's not often the subject of my study as a 3,000-year-old dead child, Kirby replied. Eshram went ahead, holding the door wide for Kirby, and instantly distracted by someone in the auditorium. Kirby made a cursory glance around them to make sure they had everything. The clear white of the corridors beyond masked the damaged lab to the right. Their eyes were drawn to a strange clot a few feet from the ground. Kirby moved towards it. At first it looked like a clump of hair or dust caught in a draught. They reached out and it passed through their fingers, a tiny wisp of ruddy particles. They frowned and retraced their steps back towards the lab. 
Every few feet, they could see a tiny fragment. They lifted a piece. Eshram was waiting in the lobby with Sheila and Matthew. It's not in the case. It's not. Look, said Kirby. Kirby handed the fleck of iron to Sheila. I saw it. I saw a moat of iron powder floating. It went through my fingers. I don't think the entity is in the case. I think it got out. They all rushed back towards the lab, pulling wide the airlock. A broad crack segmented the case in two, the hollow effigy of the child still intact within. Eshram sat in the waiting room. It was a typical featureless space, inoffensive prints in frames and a collection of scientific magazines sitting unread in a pile. He wasn't waiting long before the secretary received a call and told him he would now be seen. The large office come museum was almost expected, a series of glass cases placed on plinths, within which objects. In three were boxes almost identical to the box they had examined. One had a small borehole. I assume this is the box the Ambroses worked with. Hendon Arkwright, a tall man, thinning on top, shoulder-length salt and pepper hair, a full beard, and a suit tailored on the small size. He gestured to a seating area. Please. They sat down. Hendon removed his reading glasses. The containment system failure was not your fault. The concept was solid. We couldn't predict adaptation. The entities have a degree of agency, even from my earliest experiments, there was reaction to my efforts. I'm still not convinced it's consciousness. More different courses of action. I liken it to a choose-your-own-adventure book. When I was a child, I would hold my finger on the page that directed me. If I took the wrong path, I would go back to the previous page and take the correct path. You cheated, Eshram added. I didn't want to lose. I wanted to know where the path would take me. Dying isn't an option. Eshram smiled which is why you spend so much money on these studies. Indeed, the boxes are interesting experiments in our forebears' own journeys into understanding the afterlife. Sheila was correct, of course, the trial and error of Shellac and Iron, but not only the Egyptians. There are numerous accounts of urns and statues and flasks where the same technique was applied in various societies of antiquity, all to try to trap the essence of these aberrations. Eshram smiled. And our failure? Not a failure, we have taken into consideration the concept of harmonics, frequencies that the entities can produce, to fracture the polymer. We are working with a liquid resin that stays in a malleable state. Can't be cracked. I want you and your team, if they agree to it, of course, on another assignment. We have formulated two modern interpretations of the boxes that I want you to execute in a property I have acquired in North London. I want you to go there and try and secure an entity. Eshram coughed. You want me to catch... A ghost. Yes, Eshram, said Hendon. I want you to catch a ghost. Thank you very much for listening to this audio drama. You may be interested to know that I have two books currently available at alexcf.bigcartel.com. The first is a novel entitled Seek the Throat from Which We Sing, a visceral tale of animal mythology in the vein of Watership Down and the Secret of Nim. The second is an accompanying full-colour illustrated encyclopaedia called The Arata, a compendium of the cultures and creeds of Nar. I hope to create more audio dramas, so if you enjoyed this, please let me know. Thanks.